Our scripture today is 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 26. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 26. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that, where there, may, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is the word of our Lord. Well, good morning, College Park. It's a good day to be gathered in assembly with the people of God. And I don't know about you, <clears throat> this is my second service. That's probably not true of most of you. So I heard twice what you just heard in terms of being able to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We were so well brought into that. There was something worshipful about these two guys doing stuff. I got no idea what they were doing, but in the end, it was just had that beauty. And then that last song, that, that doxology, the triune reality of God, it just makes my heart want to leap. Eric and I have fought and talked a lot about when, he, when, he, when we greet each other in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's not just an accident. It's not just some sort of cliche. There's a triune God that's meeting with us in assembly. And... So that's pretty cool, and it sets the stage for the text we're going to talk about this morning. We, last week, started a series just for the month of <clears throat> whatever month we're in, July. I've been traveling quite a bit. I think it's July we're in. And it's a four-part series, and Andrew started last week with, uh, with the sermon on the uh, entitled, I Want to Be Like Jesus. And it, it's dealing with this idea of what does it mean to be a Christian, or what's this discipleship? Uh, how do we flesh out being disciples of Christ? And so this week... My task is to deal with 1 Corinthians 12, which is no small task, and it's to then bring to us, and here's the way I've entitled it, and that is, uh, what, what does it mean to be a Christian, or who am I? What is, what is 
the reality of Christianity as Paul describes it here. And it's not going to be a full statement of it, but it's one that I hope will be uh, convicting, encouraging, stimulating as we, we learn about who are we in Christ. And so we're coming to 1 Corinthians 12. And by the way, <clears throat> I've said this before when I preach, I write manuscripts, so it is mine. I don't follow manuscripts, so if you want to follow it, you'll probably be, you'll be here and I'll be here. So I do follow the outlines, so, but if you want to do the rest of it, good luck with that. Put a, do a lot of writing, probably, scratching out. Uh, matter of fact, in the introduction, I'm sort of virtually scrapping that. But I do want to talk about Corinthians. <clears throat> See, Mark's really good at it. <laughs> That's his gift. <laughs> So we're in the book of Corinthians, and about two and a half weeks ago, there were a group of college parkers. There were about 20, uh, or excuse me, 30, 36 or so, mostly college parkers, and we went on a trip of a lifetime that you ought to save your money so someday you could do it too before the Lord returns or after he returns or sometime. And so we went on Paul's missionary journeys, and we went through Turkey and visited the seven churches of Revelation. I mean, it's just like, hey, if you've got like four hours and want to look at a thousand slides, just call me up. We We can figure that one out. And I've got one slide here of Corinth, our last one of the last places we visit was Corinth. And just, just, just to be honest, that's not Paul. Um, <clears throat> you may not know who it is. But anyway, I'm standing next to, and you can't read it very well, but it says Bema, B-E-M-A, which in Greek is actually Bema. And some of you, if you've been around Christian stuff, you, you, you know that Bema seat that Paul talks about in Corinthians or it's translated judgment seat, or here's where the the council of Corinth met, and they made decisions, and it was described, actually, that Paul was probably somewhere close to where I'm standing, which made me want to stand all over, you know, like, I want to make sure I stand where Paul stands. Not that it really matters, it's just, you know. And, And so there was judgment that was had there, actually in Paul's favor, which was unusual in Corinth. And if you see that big mountain behind it, It's, it's a mountain on the top, the top of which has a temple or had a temple to Aphrodite, which you kind of know is the goddess of love, you know, and Corinth was known as actually one of the leading cities of the ancient world. <clears throat> I was surprised even in the study of it, even before Paul went there. It was an incredible city, a lot of stuff going on, not the least of which is the corruption of that temple w- was noted for in the vicinity of a thousand temple prostitutes that were associated with it, which makes you, when you read through 1 Corinthians, understand some of their sexual identity stuff, some of the challenges that these people were involved in. <clears throat> and where I was standing, you don't have to see that, where I was standing to my left was a temple to Apollo, and right ahead of me was the, like a first century road that prob- Paul probably walked on to come to that Bema and to the center place, the hub of where Corinth was going on. To my right was the meat market, and you remember <clears throat> in Corinthians, the debate over meat offered to idols, well, that's probably where it was. And Corinthians is a place, or Corinth is a place Paul spent one and a half years there, which is pretty significant because he must have seen God's working in a city that was convoluted and confused. And he wrote a letter, and the letter's pretty scathing. You read through 1 Corinthians. I mean, he's going after them. He's firing at them, but I think he's firing at them because he sees hope that they're going to finally start to figure out what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And, And my guess is, based on 2 Corinthians, that there were at least some strides they made. They started to understand a little bit better with still more that needed to be done. And so I come to College Park Church 2015 in July, and preach a sermon on 1 Corinthians, a text written 
2,000 years ago, and I stood on 2,000-year-old roads, and I say the message of 1 Corinthians is incredibly relevant today, 2,000 years ago, for the body of Christ, for us. <clears throat> and I can't wait to get at it. And I'm going to tell you this. I think it's challenging. I've got two parts to my sermon, which is less than three. I wish I had another, like, half hour. How many want to sign up for that? Uh, actually, I would like another couple hours to deal with the text. I don't, so I'm going to go quickly through it. But the two points that I want to bring out in this text are two truths that describe followers of Jesus. So if you're a follower of Jesus, there's at least two, and there's really more than this, but there's two that this, this text will bring out. And the first one is in the first two, in, in verses 12 and 13, and it is this. Matter of fact, I used the word in as point number one, <clears throat> which is very descriptive. Point number, so if you go out of here and somebody says, so what did the guy preach on this morning? Well, I can't remember who the guy was. He's a different guy than usually preaches, but he preached on in. And I pretty much guarantee you, they're not going to ask any questions after that. And, and, and then if you take it further, it's actually in one spirit. The nuance of inness is what I want to talk about as the first point of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Christ. And the word in, as small as it is, has a very spiritual nuance to it. That there's a very spiritual reality to what it means to be a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ. Then my second point, and I'm going to use the word incarnate. So it has in at the beginning, you know, that's supposed to be clever. So in and incarnate, that this spiritual reality that is what Christians are is also fleshed out, incarnate. We become the walking reality of Jesus Christ and his body. We're the body of Christ. So if you want to know what you are, if you're a Christian, you're in and you're incarnate. That, that's, that's the outline of the sermon. So let's start with verse 12. We're jumping into a context. There's a part of me that hates that, but it's, by the way, it's a Trinitarian context. And those of you that love the Trinity, which I hope is like everybody, Corinthians, when Paul wrote his first letter to the, the church in Corinth, he had a very clear and astute observation of Trinitarian theology. He was a Trinitarian person. He understood the Godhead was one, and yet the Godhead was three. And, and that seems so obtuse and abstract, but when you read through Corinthians, and by the way, send me an email if you want to know more about that, because it's really fun the way Paul develops it, and he develops it in this text as well. And so in verse 12, he says, listen to this. It, it has a Trinitarian background to it, for just as the body is one and has many members, you hear Trinity a little bit there, God in three persons, blessed Trinity, God is one and he is three. Well, now the body is one, has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ, it would be understood body. So there's one and many, one and many, and somehow the one and the many work together in beautiful unity with diversity that reflects an incredible triune God, and that's what the people of God are supposed to be. <clears throat> yeah. So then you come to verse 13. And I spent a lot of time wrestling with verse 13 in my prayers that somehow I'll be able to communicate it to you and then challenge you to go out and wrestle a little bit more with the first three or four words. Four in one spirit. What does it mean? What, what's the word in mean there? For in one spirit. What does in mean? I, I, I kind of like language. I don't understand music. And I don't really understand language. I understand it a little bit. I'm convinced of this. The smaller the word, the harder it is. Bigger the word, the easier. Now, you may not know what big words mean, but I can almost guarantee you 
that you're not immediately going to know what small words mean either. Because if I were to ask you, what does in spirit mean, in one spirit, I would imagine that you're going to get stumped a little bit. It doesn't mean in a pool, like I'm in the swimming pool, I'm in the pool of the... It's not that. It's not locative or locational. It's spiritual, which then forces me who so... I mean, I understand cars. I don't understand cars, but I understand I have a car. I have a house. I have grass that needs to be cut. I understand physical stuff. But then when you talk, talk, start talking spiritual stuff, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, now, and I've been a pastor a while, so I've had to think about it. Most of you have been in church a while. You've thought a little bit. What does it mean in one spirit where we all baptized into one body? What does that word in mean? Let me give you a couple suggestions, and I would like to kind of press it out a little bit more, but we'll run out of time. <clears throat> Let me suggest this. First of all, it is a spiritual discussion. When Paul says, in one spirit, by the way, I need to insert one other thing. It's not by one spirit, although some of your translations will say by one spirit. How many translations we got? Hey, the hands are going up. That's good. It could be by one spirit. When you look up the word in in a Greek lexicon, a Greek dictionary, it's got a couple of pages. It's just like there's a whole bunch of options. One of the lower options is the word by. And if it were by one spirit, it would be like you're baptized and the spirit's the one doing the baptizing. You know, the agent of baptism, by one spirit. When you say in one spirit, it changes, doesn't it? He's not the agent. He's the one that you're in. As a matter of fact, it's used five other times in the New Testament. I think it's five or six in the Gospels. And it's always Jesus is the baptizer, and he baptizes in the Spirit. It's a spiritual nuance, spiritual kind of a concept. And when we talk about the Holy Spirit, and we talk about the Spirit, we're talking spiritual. And if you're a follower of Christ, if you're one that's in the body of Christ, what precedes that is the reality of being in one Spirit, the text argues that all of the redeemed are in one spirit. There are some theologies that might want to argue, well, some have kind of gotten the spirit and some haven't. Paul didn't seem to understand that at all. He's talking to a group, a church that has its problems, and he says, we're all in one spirit. It's a spiritual nuance, a spiritual reality. It's not physical. It, it, it reminds me of just a couple of minutes ago, we partook of the Lord's Supper. Here's an empty cup. I want to say fill it up because I need more. <laughs> fill up. I wish I could take two cups. Don't you? Don't you ever, when it goes by, don't you say, man, if I can only have two cups or three cups, because I can't get enough. It's the gospel. Can you ever get enough of the gospel? Give me more Jesus. And yet there's something spiritual about it too, isn't it? Because I mean, it's just juice. I don't even know what brand it is. And then it's got these crusty little really nice crackers. And they just kind of like, mm. And it, there's, you're, what we're doing is we're reflecting on the spiritual reality. And Luke helped me so well in coming to this table and reflecting on the big picture of this little event and the anticipation of what's yet to come. There's a spiritual reality here that if you're an alien or if you're somebody that's never seen the Lord's Supper and you come to our assembly and you see what we just did, you ought to be scratching your head and saying, there's some weird people there. What is, what is up with these little cups? Come on. And what's up with these little cups is a lot bigger than these little cups, isn't it? It's spiritual. And when you talk about it in spirit, it's bigger than just that little preposition. As a matter of fact, it reminds me, just yesterday I was, <clears throat> not yesterday, this past week I was on town, and it's that 
fresh, is it fresh time, fresh something that's like a, a place my wife tells me I ought to go because it's supposed to be healthier. Maybe it is. Hopefully it is. I'm getting a sandwich there. There's this guy next to me. He had a Wolf Run shirt on, which is a golf course that I've played once or twice. It's a really cool golf course. And so I thought, okay, this guy must be cool. He was going to let me go first in line. I said, no, no, no. You go first. So I'm, I'm a pastor. You know, you go first. <laughs> so he goes first, and then he was more talkative than me, and he starts talking, and I'm like, oh, okay, I hadn't anticipated this. I guess I got to be a Christian now. And he starts talking, and he's telling me that he had a heart attack, I forget, a couple of months ago, <clears throat> or a couple of weeks ago, or sometime, I don't know. And he, called, he says, like that widowmaker heart attack, and I'm like, some of you know what that is, that he should have died, and he should be dying pretty soon, and he's been two months into it. And so I'm thinking, Lord, are you telling me something here? Like maybe sharing the gospel a little bit to this guy? Because then he said, you know, it makes me think about deeper things. And I thought, well, praise God for that. And then I shared a little bit about, yeah, I'm a pastor and believe that Christ is the answer. And there's a spiritual nuance that sometimes comes when you understand there's more to the world than just my heart beating and my feet walking. And there's a spiritual reality that the people of God understand because we're in one spirit. It's not only spiritual, <clears throat> it's also, and I think this is kind of cool, that, that there's an intimacy to it when you're in one spirit. Here's a word we use in English, and we've abused it for years, and we'll continue to abuse it, is that word in love. Any, anybody in love? We got in love, people. <laughs> Thank you. There's one husband, and I, I'm just going to assume you're in love with your wife, so there you go. <laughs> Come on, you other husbands. What's up with that? <laughs> there you go. That's better. Should I give you another chance? Nah. I, it wasn't intended to be a trick question, but we do use that word in love, and it's gotten so distorted in our society, and I would say this. I'm in love with my grandkids. And I'm, I, I said this in first service, and I've said it many times. It's very obvious I'm too young to have grandkids, but I'm in love with them anyway. <laughs> And then I thought, first service, I forgot, I'm also in love with my kids, so don't leave them out of the equation. But when I think of in love, I think of Kathy, who was in first service. And the fact is this, that I am in love with Kathy. And it's not just, you know what I find? That the years we've been married, the more years that get tacked on, I'm more in love with her. And I used to hear people say that, and I was like, yeah. You know, it's when you're young, that's when you got, you know. And then I realized that love has this spiritual nuance to it. And as a matter of fact, if you don't believe that, you don't think Paul thought about that, read the next chapter, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, that I think is very contextual as he's dealing with this whole idea of spiritual, in one spirit. There's an intimacy to it. Here's what the church of Jesus Christ ought to be a church that is in love with Jesus. And frankly, that love that we have for Jesus comes from the spirit as we are one with the spirit. And, and it almost defies full explanation. And it's one of those things, like, as a matter of fact, in John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, there's, so belief is one of those things. It's not just, I've got this cognitive understanding. It's that depth of relationship and of intimacy that the church manifests, we should manifest, that we have a spiritual understanding in a world that screams the spiritual stuff is not anything for sensible people to want to be involved in. It's intimate. It's relational. You're in one spirit. You have a relationship with that spirit. <clears throat> I, 
found this illustration. I got it off of the web a while ago, and uh, I forgot to write who, who, who wrote this, so I have no idea who this is from. And so I guess it could not be true, but it's still a good illustration. And it was a guy, a Christian leader, that had adopted a young girl. She was like eight years old. And uh, she had been adopted previously, and it hadn't worked out for whatever reason, and he wasn't faulting the other family. But one of the things that they had found out in just doing some research was that this little girl uh, that was adopted in the first family, the first family went to Disney World several times, and they, they didn't take their adopted daughter. They just took their biological kids. And, you know, I read that, and I'm like, mm, I don't know the whole story. It doesn't really matter. The story goes like this. So this dad decides his family's going to Disney World. You know, we're going to Disney World. And, and so the little girl figures, yeah, they're going to Disney World. I'm not, the new adopted girl. And apparently her conduct was the opposite. You would have thought she would have been really nice to try to merit her way into going to Disney World, and she did exactly the opposite. It was almost like that self-fulfilled prophecy. If I act really bad, then I won't be so disappointed because I know they're not going to take me to Disney World anyway. And the dad said, so what's, what's up? I mean, she'd been acting horrible for days, and then she told him that story, and he said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Our family's going to Disney World. Are you a part of the family? And she said sheepishly, yes. He said, then you're going. The family's going. It isn't based on your conduct. It's based on you are in the family. So they went to Disney World, and the story, he goes on for a long time. And this, I thought, was a classic definition of a day at Disney. It was a typical Disney day. Overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, lots of lines, mingled with just enough manufactured magic to consider maybe going again someday. <laughs> Remember my brother saying he saw more crying kids in Disney than anywhere. <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah. So then in the hotel room that night, they're together as a family, and they're exhausted, as they would be. And so he asked her the question, so how was your first day at Disney? And she says, closed her eyes, snuggled in her stuffed unicorn. Uh, it's a Christian family, but they had unicorns. After a few moments, <laughs> she opened her eyes ever so slightly, and she said, Daddy? And this is based on her background. I finally got to go to Disney World, but it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It's because I'm in the family. And you see, being in the spirit isn't just a task or a duty. It's a privilege and it's a beauty that the people of God are in. We're in. And if we're in, we ought to be all in. <laughs> And for in the spirit, and I got to tell you, I still wrestle with that idea of what in the world does in mean? I'm in the spirit, and I look around and I think College Park Church, when the world sees us, they ought to see a group of people who have at least some ability to wrestle with the deeper reality of spiritual nuancing in our lives. Let me suggest that there's two, you know, two really magic things to help you to better understand what it means to be in one spirit. One is this, maybe you could spend more time in prayer. And I'm here to tell you, my experience with prayer is it's challenging. You know why it's challenging? Because I'm better with material things than I am with spiritual things. And it feels so like I want to grab something, I want to do something, and to humble myself and to get on my knees, whatever your posture is, and say, Spirit of the living God, I'm in you, and I want to know you better. And actually, when you know the Spirit better, here's the beauty of the Spirit. He's going to lead you to Jesus. He's going to lead you to Christ. He's going to lead you to living out the beauty of who Christ is. And I, 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 I find for myself and my 
conviction after studying this text is I need to work a lot harder at understanding the spiritual reality of who I am. I am in one spirit. And that is who we are as the people of God. And my prayer for us is that we would understand even better what that means. And as a church, we would rally around our unity. And our unity is in the spirit. And Paul actually goes on and describes it a little bit more in verse 13. He says, from one spirit, circle the word in, were we all baptized into one body. It's the body of Christ. And then it says, Jews are Greeks. So it's not ethnically or racially divided. For the last six or eight months, I've been meeting with a group of of African-American brothers. And what what an incredibly cool time that's been for me. Because I'm trying to kind of open my mind. Because you see, the church is unified so that skin color, pigmentation is not, or, or, or cultural differences are not distinctions in the spirit. Are they? As a matter of fact, what we're going to find out later on, they are important. Those distinctions are important so that as we live out in the body, we want to live out the beauty of the glory of diversity. And yet, let me tell you this, and here's what I found with these guys that I've been meeting with. We are in one spirit. And we together are proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and that is a true reality, and it's one that, you know, it's, it's neither Jew or Gentile. And by the way, in that, or Greek, in that context, I don't think he's talking about it's neither the, the people that are in covenant or out of covenant. I think he's talking racially or ethnically. And then he says it's neither slave or, or what's the other one, slave or free. It's, it's not socioeconomic. It isn't like, and you know, we're a north side church. We, we've, we've, got, we've got some people that got stuff here, and, and praise the Lord for that. And we also have some people that don't got stuff here. And praise the Lord for that. How's that for really good English? Um, and, And here's reality, that when we come in assembly and we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, and then we say amen at the end of that, we're saying that we're unified around the triune God. When we take communion, we're saying there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're in one spirit. And, and I tell you what, the world ought to come and look at the church and say, those guys do some really quirky things. But somehow, they wrestle with this spiritual thing and they continue to wrestle with it. And church, we need to wrestle with it. As a matter of fact, and I don't have enough time, I understand that already, but I want to take 20 seconds of silence And I want you, in your spot, to think and pray to the Spirit of the living God and say, Spirit of the living God, I want to know you better. I want to understand spiritual reality better. And ask God for that. And let's do that all as a community in one spirit. Let's pray and do it silently. And then we'll go to point number two. Spirit of the living God, We who are the redeemed are in you. We're in one spirit. And Lord, may we manifest the beauty of being in you. May we know you more intimately. And as we know you, we'll know Jesus because we're baptized into that one body. And Lord, we want to have a more acute spiritual sensitivity in our own lives for your glory. Grant us that. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, you, you may be here this morning and you're not in one spirit. And, and, 
And Luke talked about that a little bit in the communion service. And man, are we glad you're here. And we would love nothing better than you be in one spirit baptized into that one body. And that comes from trusting Jesus. We're going to have people up here afterward. We'd love to talk to you because there's nothing like being a part of the body of Christ and being in one spirit. And, and that's not just a side note. That's at the core of what we're all about. Which then brings us to point number two in verse 14. And here we go. It's like Paul's, the tenor changes. It's this, I think, sobering spirit stuff. The people of God, followers of God, are in one spirit, baptized in one body. And then I think he comes over, and I think Paul the comedian comes out. I really do. I don't think Paul would, I, I think he would say, come on. Don't, I mean, yeah, I got some big, long sentences, and I know a lot of big theological words, but don't you think I have some sense of humor? Do you, do you think Paul has a sense of humor? Is it okay to have a sense of humor? If you, don't, if you read this and you don't at least sort of smile, even you that never smile, try it. Watch, watch how he goes at it. So he's gonna, he moves from in the spirit, in one spirit, spiritually, and now he's going to talk, and I use the word incarnate. He's going to talk about this body, this flesh thing. It's the body of Christ. And, and he's going to talk about it in two ways. So there's two sub-points. One is he's going to go at the various different parts of the body, and he's going to say this. Now, if you think that you can get away without being a part of the body because you're not good enough. You know, you got that, whoa, is me. I'm just, you know, I just don't have what everybody else has. You've heard people like that. Some of you are people like that. And, and so that becomes an excuse, I'm not good enough. Or the other side is, you're either like have that insecurity or I'm inferior, or you've got this sense of, I am too good for this group. Ah, kind of, you, know what I, you know what I do for a job? How can I get with these kind of people and drink these little grape juice things? I'm better than that. Well, watch how Paul fleshes this out. It's, it's a lot of fun. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one, many, but me of one member but many. Not one, but many. Now, we are one in the spirit, but there's many. And then he goes into this litany of, and I've got a slide here, another Corinth slide. Actually, I've got a hundred of them, but only two for this morning. Isn't that cool? Say no, it's not. It was really a weird museum. And it was in Corinth. And it, those, are, those are leg parts. And I didn't show you the other body parts because we're a proper group, really. It had hands, it had heads, and it had whatever else. And, and what this was, it was kind of a cult thing where if you had a problem with your feet, then you made a model or got somebody to make a model of your feet. You took it into the temple so they would pray for it. It was kind of a cultish thing, wanting bodies to be healed. I don't know if Paul had that in mind or not. But here's what he says in verse 15. And so I've, you know, at times I've brought these props and you guys keep egging me on. So I say that every time. It's your fault. But this one really works well. I think Paul would like this. So he says, if the foot, it's not really a foot, but it works, right? Because I'm not bringing a foot. If a foot, and by the way, you're not supposed to look at this and say, so am I a foot? You're supposed to get the picture. If a foot should say, because I'm not a hand, it's a golf glove, foot says, which, by the way, the foot doesn't even have lips. This one seems like it does. So the foot's saying, hey, Anne, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, am I less a part of the body? And then <clears throat> he says, if the ear says, so who does the ear say it to? Um, and if the ear should say, because I'm not an I, hey, I, I'm not you. And, and it's self-deprecating. It's like, all I am is an ear. I'm not an I. So I'm not really, and you know, you've never said that, but you have. I'm not, 
good enough to be in this church with so many talented people. Haven't you? I say that every now and then. Like, really? I'm supposed to get up there and preach? Mark preaches every week. Come on. Yeah. Because I'm not, I don't believe that. That would make it any less a part of the body? You know the answer to that. I'm saying, foot, I don't care what you say, because I know you can't say anything. You stay on there. Because apart from that, I had, I had both of my Achilles tendons ruptured in my life. How's that? And that's about the worst thing that's happened to me physically. I remember the one that ruptured it. Just that foot, just like, it didn't do anything. And my hand's going after it, and everything's going after it, saying, come on, foot, you got work to do. So I had to get it healed, or had, it, it had some doctors that helped with that. Now, verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, here's the body. So it's, the eye's got no lips, can't talk, can't think, it's just this big eye, and you're supposed to laugh and say, that's crazy, come on. Yeah, well, you don't have to laugh, but I think they did in the first century. <laughs> I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? All I can't hear. I, I've, got, I've got two ears, only one of them works, and I'm always glad to tell people that, because then if you talk to me on this side, you may as well just talk to the wall. But you know what? Some of you guys stayed up all night last night because of the storms. I put the good ear down on the pillow, and I'm here to tell you. <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty peaceful night. It was. And yet I also know some of the problems, like when we were on the trip and I'm on a bus and somebody's on my left side and they're telling me these deep theological truths and I'm just like, I don't know what you're saying. <clears throat> Look at verse 18, because here's the punch of it. But some of you, no, I love the word, but it's a contrastive word. It's not an anatomical word in this context at all. It's saying this, there's an absurdity to the glove and the foot and the ear and all this stuff having arguments, it, that doesn't happen in bodies. And the idea that someone would say, I'm not quite, you know, this church, I can't find a place for me. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. So you're not here in the body of Christ by accident. You're not. It's by intention. And if you think God's just floating up there saying, hey, I hope everything works out all right, then you, Paul doesn't think it that way. Paul would say this, and he'd point the finger at all of us, and he would say, you're a part of the body, like he would say to foot, you're a part of the body. I don't even know a boatload of stuff between my foot and my hand. There's a bunch of stuff there, and I don't know most of it. I know this. Keep working, guys. <laughs> We're still planning a few more years here. Keep going at it. And here when Christ sees his church, he's not satisfied with people who seem to have that ultra humble, I can't do it. And then he says, don't worry about what you can't do. Worry about what I can do because I've placed you there because I'm the king and the Lord of my church and of my body. <clears throat> then verse 29, it kind of shifts the argument around a little bit. If the I, so here we go. Mr. I or Mrs. I or Miss I or whoever I, Miss I, well, anyway says, cannot say to the hand, I, you can't say to the hand, partly because the eye can't talk, but also because even theoretically you can't say, I don't need you, hand, get out of here. Can't say that. <clears throat> On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Which part of your body are you pretty glad to do without? You say, well, appendix, and I think, I'm not so excited about how I get rid of that appendix. 
Uh, and maybe it does have some function that somebody doesn't know. I don't know. But the point is, the body works together. And even those parts that for some reason we've determined maybe seem like they're more important, like the guy who stands up and preaches on Sunday morning. I'm glad to be a part of a church where the pastor who predominantly preaches on Sunday morning doesn't think it's all about him. <laughs> and if he did, we got some elders. <laughs> who would come up and say, oh, wait a minute, we got some 1 Corinthians 12 work to do. Or the person that leads the group that, that takes all of us, and it doesn't take arrogant people, and it doesn't take self-diminutive people, it takes all of us because there's a God who has designed his church, and he's interested in all of us. Verse 22, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. <clears throat> That's the part you're supposed to just go over in a sermon. The, uh, you know, the you see, unpresentable parts, what in the world are those? I know nobody would answer that question, because here's what they are. They're the private parts of your body. Can't talk about that in mixed company. <clears throat> and yet, you know what? You remember what I told you about Corinth? They had a really, really misconstrued view of human sexuality, and it wasn't new to them. I mean, you think that's the first time? Go back in Genesis and read through the whole Old Testament, and then come and look at Corinth in biblical times, and they're not the exception, and then come to 21st century sophisticated United States of America. <laughs> And in our churches, we ought to be talking about what God in his original creation designed to be beautiful and glorious. As a matter of fact, Adam and Eve were both naked and they were not ashamed, which is a weird world for me to live in because it's a world that understands the reversal of curse. And then when the curse came in, there was this covering up. And I'm, you, you know what they covered up. And you say, why? Because it's not like an irrelevant part of human existence. Take those parts away, and you got no Abel, and you got no Cain, and you got no nobody, and you're not here, and none of us are here, and the glory of God doesn't cover the earth like the water covers the sea, because that was intended to be done by image bearers that are brought about by people of God. And so when Paul throws that in there, and I don't think it was just like, hey, I want to I get them just a little bit, you know, I want to be a little edgy. I think he was saying this, that all of the body works together. It's all necessary. And by the way, we need to be modest. That's absolutely true. And yet as the people of God, we ought to talk about even our sexuality is something that's a part of the body and it ought to bring glory to God. Like my daughter, we were talking to her yesterday and she's pregnant with the third child, which just so happens to be our sixth grandkid, yeah, I mean, it's her third child, our sixth grandkid, and she's suffering. I mean, she's in that first trimester, and thank you, God, for you women who go through first trimesters and whatever else, and my heart went out to her, and then I said something that I thought, I think I believe this, that you're bearing this child on behalf of kind of the whole family. It is going to be a part of the whole, yeah, you got the burden right now. Bummer. I wish I could take some of it away from you. And yet, even in that regard, you're building our family, and I, I know how they're going to raise their kids. You're also building a kingdom, and it's God's kingdom, not yours. So Paul says, we've got all these different parts. Even those parts are treated with greater modesty, verse 24, which our more presentable parts do not require. And then here's but number two, 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. God's the one 
who's composed the body of Christ. He is, and I love Eric's song, Master Artist, and, and it has this sense of God is the one who's working in us to do his good will. We're in the spirit, and we're to flesh out the beauty of the body of Christ, and we're all different, and we all have variety, and that differences comes together in a way that glorifies God so that I get a different perspective of being in the spirit when I talk to my African-American brothers than I do sometimes when I talk to my white brothers and when I talk to my wife it's almost as though it isn't a new God, but it has this perspective that gets broadened and expanded so that I see the glory of a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and then I want to go out and live it in the world and expand God's kingdom by God's grace because, you see, God's composed the body. You're here, and it's not by accident. It's by the sovereign reality of a God who's interested in his body. Verse 25, that there be no division in the church. You know, so how in the world? I mean, the absurdity of hand, eyes, feet. You know your body doesn't work that way. Our bodies are smart enough. They don't do that. They come to the aid of each other. They're all working together. Some at times don't work quite as well, but there's a sense in which that wasn't their decision. And then we come finally to verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. I love that and hate it because I can't wait for the day when no members suffer. That day's coming. But until that day, we're going to have people, the body, they're going to suffer. And the suffering, and Brad was praying for various different needs in the church. It looks different in different contexts and different places. And wow, I love it. I've seen it in College Park, and I would say, may we see it even more that when people are struggling, and it could be physical, it could be spiritual, that, that we come together and it's almost like this, this, this effect of we're swarming as the body to meet needs. And then we rejoice with those that rejoice. We're not like, oh, man, look at that person. They always get the better job. They always get, they always get, they always get. But we say, no, 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 no. We rejoice with those that rejoice. We mourn with those that mourn because we're the body, and we're a body on mission. And the mission is, you know what the mission of the body is? If you read the health books, you're going to say the mission of your body is to get smaller. So like your belt, you want to, eh, I'm not going to do that. You want to, you want to get the belt loops to be less. Here's the mission of the body of Christ. It's to, to undo belt loops. It's to get those expando things, you know, that you can get with your, because the body wants to get bigger and bigger. I ought to buckle my belt because I'm standing in front of a bunch of people. <laughs> That's what our mission is. Our mission is that the glory of God would cover the earth. The earth, which means fishers. It means Indianapolis. It means Azerbaijan. It means the Far East. It means, and you can fill in the blanks, and the church is the body of Christ, the incarnate body of Christ that's going to bring Christ around the world, and that is the goal and the mission of a disciple of Christ. So, so the question at the end is this. Are we, are we followers of Christ? What does it mean? Well, it means this that we have a spiritual reality of being and understanding of being in the spirit. And you got to work at that. As a matter of fact, you got to go home today and learn. And, and we got to be in a lifelong journey of learning to walk in the spirit, to be filled with the spirit, to demonstrate the fruits of the spirit because they don't come naturally. They don't come physically. They come spiritually. Secondly, we ought to be a group of people. Here's what Christians are. They live in unity, not disunity. They're not looking to pick. 
They're saying, yeah, okay, maybe there are different skin colors. And you know what we like? We love to see unity because that's what the triune God is. That, yeah, there's men and women. Yeah, there's people that have just different, there's, there's a variety and a ton of differences, and yet we're all coming together in one spirit, and the differences actually are really good because they're serving that one Lord. That we're living in unity, and may that be the case for College Park Church And then finally, I would say this. You know what? We're in the spirit, and it's time we got all in. (laughs) And it's a call for me, too. Yeah, I'm a pastor. I'm on staff. But we need, let me rephrase that. Christ has chosen to use everybody in the body, and it isn't everybody except you. It's everybody. When we did our covenant renewal, it wasn't just some sort of a formula, paperwork kind of a thing, because we don't need any more paperwork. It was sort of an affirmation that says, church, let's come together. We're diverse, but we want to show unity, and we got a mission. We got work to do, and we need everybody to do that work. And Christ has chosen to use us as his body. We've got a fishers to proclaim light and gospel to. And you can go on around the globe. And you can even look here in this body. We have people in need even within, as I try to scope it. And may we, the church of Jesus Christ, show that incredible tenacity of everybody involved. Not just because I want to check the list off. It's because I'm in the spirit. I'm in one spirit. That's what, I, that's what we do. That's who we are. <clears throat> and it's all to the glory of God. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, Father, Son, and Spirit. And you live out in such glorious beauty, unity, and then you live out diversity. The Son, your Son came and died for us. Your Spirit indwells us, and we're in your Spirit. And Father, you're the master architect that has brought about what is a glorious kingdom. And then you've called us to be the body of Christ And Lord, we want to do that, not just as a task to fulfill a requirement, but because that's who we are. And Lord, I pray for every person here this morning, if they don't know you as their Savior, Lord, bring them into this body. It's a phenomenal body. And I don't mean College Park, although it could be that, but I mean your body. And then may we, College Park members, may we live in unity and commit ourselves to that, and may we be mission-oriented so that we don't make excuses. We're not good enough or we're too good, but we're saying, God, we're serving you and we're in the Spirit. I pray that for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his kingdom. Amen.